Hello, and welcome back to The Rewind. I'm Josh, and this is a podcast where I watch a bunch of movies and talk about them with my friends. Today's episode is on The Irishman, and I'm happy to be joined once again by Joey Magidson, film critic for A Word Circuit and The Hollywood News. Joey, thanks for being here for this one. Sure thing. My pleasure. I, uh, I heard you paint houses. Oh, I also do my own carpentry. Uh, but the, the, yeah. the, the, the Irishman is the uh, newest film from Martin Scorsese. It is based on the book by Charles Brandt called I Heard You Paint Houses. Uh, Charles Brandt interviewed Frank Sheeran about his life working as a hitman for both the, for the Philadelphia mob and also getting involved as a confidant of Jimmy Hoffa and the Teamsters. And uh, the movie stars Robert De Niro as Frank Sheeran, Al Pacino as Jimmy Hoffa, Joe Pesci in one of his first meaningful roles in what based two decades as as russell buffalino who is one of the top guys in the philadelphia mob at the time amongst a lot of other faces uh that you would recognize and it's a sprawling movie that goes from all the way from the 50s all the way uh through jimmy hoffa's death and even well into the 21st century uh and tracks really frank's time trying to kind of work with both of these powerful entities and all the different cast of characters that are going on around it. Uh, Joey, I guess before we even get into just our opinions on the movie, I guess what I'll first ask you is, you know, I think the production of this movie made almost as much news as its release. You know, uh, there's just so much noise out there over the last couple of years, whether it be about, you know, the budget that this movie had and its de-aging technology, just the excitement of all these actors getting together. or, Or, I mean, I guess in Al Pacino just being in a, uh, Martin Scorsese movie for the first time. Uh, it's ridiculous runtime. Uh, I, I say I don't say ridiculous derisively. I we'll talk about the length. I, I, I don't. I'm not, I don't find that objectionable. But just there was just a lot of noise about this movie before it even came out. Uh, how did you modulate your expectations uh, going in, given all of that, and uh, where did you ultimately uh, come down on it based on wherever you're at as when you went into to see the movie for the first time? Yeah, I, I, I like Scorsese quite a bit. I don't put him in my like top five filmmakers favorite wise, but I, I largely enjoy everything he's done minus when he gets very, very religious, mm. silent and cooned in and, um, the uh, last temptation of Christ. They're not, they're not really my favorites. I, I see what he's going for, but I never connect with them. I also, interesting enough, I like think Goodfellas is a lot of fun. I don't really think it's about anything. So it's never been my favorite of his either. So I was interested, but it wasn't, necessarily like oh this is going to be the thing i want to see most of all of hmm. the year gotcha um but i you know, tracked it as much as anyone else um and then interestingly enough i can probably talk about this now back in the summer i saw some of it yes so netflix invited a number of us to come and see a few clips of it before they debuted the trailer they debuted the trailer with us this, this was they announced it was opening the new york film festival so that morning they did the announcement that evening we were there we got invited a week or two ago and we're told to keep it under our hats and interestingly there they uh de niro and his producer i think it was i forget which one of the producers made a big uh speech about it and talked about how this movie came about because they were going to make a different movie uh scorsese and uh de niro were going to make the the winner of frankie machine a uh a book adaptation um Don Winslow, I think, wrote it. I don't remember. But it was going to be more of a pulpy genre, like just studio movie to do a studio movie. Hmm. And at some point, De Niro had gotten a copy of A Herge Japan Houses and was into it, gave it to Scorsese and was like, maybe we can work some of this into the story because uh, Frankie Machine is a 
older, like retired gangster, like getting pulled back in. So I think his concept was maybe we could bring up that maybe he killed um, Hoffa or maybe he was involved in that something. They had like another like layer to it. And they began focusing on that more and more. And apparently when they were on the phone call with, <clears throat> at the time, Brad Gray to like get, get it greenlit at Paramount, he said, so we're going we're gonna to be a go on Frankie Machine. And they said, well, what about this? And they pitched him the Irishman. Hmm. And they get a big laugh at the events by saying, so Brad Gray said, so you want to take a greenlit movie and turn it into a development deal? <laughs> and then they said, oh, yeah. And that started and they couldn't figure out the budget and all that rigmarole that happened for you know five or six years before we got it. Um, and then I saw it at the New York Film Festival. Um, it's interesting to be the first crowd to see something, even having seen a scene or two, because you you have no idea what to expect. It yeah. sometimes is helpful to know yeah. like the general idea, like like I'm going to go see Cats next week, and I kind of am expecting it to be terrible. Maybe <laughs> it won't be. That in your head, or if you'd heard at a you know at a can that once upon a time in Hollywood is is great to very good, depending on who you are. You just have that in your head. So when you see something with absolutely no expectations, it's a Interesting experience. I, I actually, um, it's my fourth or fifth favorite film of the year. I, I think it's his best gangster movie and arguably one of his five best films that he's done in, to date. Wow. Yeah, I, I think it was interesting that uh, that you made the point that uh, Goodfellas to you isn't about anything. And like I really love Goodfellas, but I wouldn't have like a strong response if i want if i were to want to argue with you on that i and yeah. i think what's kind of cool is that uh if you're just talking about expectations one i think at the point at which you had seen that uh those those few early scenes you couldn't really say anything about it but i didn't really want to know anything about it but you told me you had and yeah. i was just like can you help me get excited for it and and i was just like so is joe pesci awesome and i think you were just like yeah it's good and i was like i didn't really want to know anything more than that so i kind of came in with the with the expectation of like, oh, right, someone that I whose taste I trust told me like, oh, Joe Pesci's good in this, and that the movie l looks nice, but like I didn't know anything else, and I I actually watched Casino for the first time a few months ago, so uh, it was one I just always been able to, trying to get around to, and for whatever reason never had. So me mm -hmm. as being someone that you know knows Joe Pesci from the Irish or not from the Irishman from Goodfellas and Casino, I just I know one version of Joe Pesci that is more present in my mind than any version of Joe Pesci or something like that. So I go into this movie thinking like, oh, well, it's going to be a Martin Scorsese gangster movie, and that's all I really know. Cool, Joe Pesci's in it, Ray Romano's in it. And I, it's kind of funny in that I'm not, I'm not making any original point here, but it is interesting that a lot of people are seeing it as kind of like not a repudiation of his other movies, but it is very notable that there's not a there's not a stretch of this movie that it, there is in Casino or Goodfellas where it's like, hey, everything's good and is fun. We're all having fun right yeah. now. And I think that's like the most notable thing is that there's not a section of this movie that's like that. And you go in with that expectation, I think, when you go into a Martin Scorsese movie, even like you do for like Wolf of Wall Street or something like that. Like there's a stretch of that movie where everything's just going great for everyone, even if like you might even feel weird that you're like kind of having fun too with these guys that are doing the illegal stuff like they are in that movie too. But, you know, here it's – there isn't a stretch of this movie that's like that, yet I find it in, in incredibly entertaining nonetheless and extremely watchable for something that's as long as it was. I rewatched it last night because I just wanted it. It had been a few weeks since I saw it, and I was worried because the first time I saw the movie, I, I was lucky enough to see it in a theater. I didn't think I was going to be able to. I had to drive all the way from West Palm Beach to Miami, Miami last year to see Roma in a theater, and I, I would have been willing to do that again. And luckily there was a theater not far from me here that ended up getting it, and I was like, all right, well, I'm glad I saw it in a theater, but I'm just worried just by watching it on Netflix – 
and having all of the distractions that come with like second screening and just watching it in your living room or on your iPad, like it's going to take me five hours to watch this movie. And I mean, I had to do a couple things for dinner or whatever, but I, I, I finished the movie in four hours, which I, I thought was pretty good for trying to watch yeah. a movie of that length for the second time in your home. Like you could easily zone out when you've already seen something or just feel more inclined to pause and go look at something else. And I just found it incredibly watchable for a movie where he's not, you know, going all in on the, all right, we're going to have a fun time watching these guys do these illegal things. And I just still found it like incredibly watchable. And that's why I I haven't actually like updated my yearly rankings, but it is probably in my top 10. And I just think it's pretty impressive that it doesn't, you go in expecting that kind of traditional Martin Scorsese mob movie formula, and it doesn't give you that yet. It's still like just extremely fun to watch and i think that's like the biggest compliment i can give it yeah no it has it has somewhat more in common with the departed not like thematically and not like stylistically necessary but there's no glory this is uh this is a job like that's Mm -hmm. part of what fuels as you get towards the end and you start to realize what this story's really been about um frank you know thinks he's done his job i you know i was a good employee i did my job well i was loyal I was good at my job, took care of my family. Like in his, in his views, he doesn't have any regrets about what he did. The, the things he did are just part of the job. He has regrets about his daughter and his family, which we'll address in a bit, but like his job and what he did, the acts he did, that's part of the, it was on the job description, you know, in his view. So there's no fun. You know, he never looked at it as a fun job. It was, uh, this is the job I do. So that was way more with, the DiCaprio, Damon, Fred, oh. um, departed view of, you know, cops just do their job. They don't have fun at their job. Yeah. That, that Leo character in the departed, he's just so, uh, I mean, he's just going through some shit the whole time. It doesn't allow you to have fun in that kind of way. So I, I like that. I like that parallel, uh, that you drew there. And I, I think it's funny. I, and I don't mind talking about the end of this movie. Now we're not doing a spoiler section. People have had long enough to watch this thing at this point. Uh, you said you you don't love it when Scorsese gets like very religious and he does spend a lot of time talking to this priest at the end. Uh, what were your reads on those scenes? Cause you're, I mean, you're talking about like how he doesn't regret his job. So what was your take when, uh, as someone, uh, who's watched this guy for like three hours, just do all kinds of terrible things and doesn't really seem to think twice about it. Uh, what was your read on those scenes then? Cause I think that's uh, pretty pertinent to what you've already talked about. Um, I just, that, that stuff was among my favorite parts of the movie. Interestingly, because yeah. It's also the main reason to encourage someone to watch it in one sitting because you need to experience the passage of time because once you realize, well, you see at the beginning, once you put together, you know, that this is Frank narrating the story as an old man, that reads into, you know, when we talk about Anna Paquin's character and the whole, Mm -hmm. like, the complaints about her not having any lines, that's because uh, other people have written this. I'm not making it up. It's not my brilliant read of the movie. He can't remember a conversation with his daughter. That's why there isn't one. He never had a meaningful conversation with her. Ooh, I haven't. I actually hadn't seen that. That's an inter, That's interesting. Yeah. That's new she, for me. That if you think about as a young girl, and then when she's played by Anna Paquin, the only times you really see him interacting with her are right before or after violence, mm-hmm. when he takes her to the grocery store and he beats the crap out of the the grocer, which teaches her not to talk to him and not to say when she has a problem. And after Jimmy Hoffa's disappeared and she immediately figures he must have something to do with it and never speaks to him again, even when he makes attempts later on. So that stuff is on your mind in the end. So when they involve the, you know, the, the priest and things like that, 
it's more just watching an old man who is realizing that he's alone and like the only thing he has left is you know getting last rites essentially he's it's less about the religion and more about the idea of his family is gone his friends are gone the his best friend is gone because well spoiler he murdered him yeah. but yeah. the only thing he has left is he wanted to have a relationship with his daughters one is willing to speak to him but doesn't want to be in his life and the other won't acknowledge his presence so the only person he really has to talk to is a priest and even then the priest is you know asks about our well are you sorry and he says not really you know he doesn't really regret what he did he just yeah. wants to be told that it's okay and there's no one to tell him it's okay so that's why the last shot of him just sort of sitting in that chair with the door open he's sort of just waiting to die now he's the last one yeah no he he he, he is totally alone and i guess uh that that loneliness is like just i mean it, it's really important and i and, and i hear what you're saying i guess i i think part of the reason why that last half hour of the movie is so effective is just how pathetic they look um you know yeah. i i mean one of the most visually uh one of the, one of the scenes that's going to stick with me visually more so than any other i've seen in a movie this year is is russell having to wet his bread and grape juice to, in order to eat it and which looks like really yeah. good bread from like an italian restaurant or something that they somehow got into the prison and it's like this is what they've been reduced to and i mean I, they're old so they might have been that unhealthy on the outside regardless but they would have had a little more help to to do things and it's like wow so at least it's clear to the audience that it like hey wow these guys it I, who knows that they thought it was worth it but you know like these guys uh for all their for for all the money they made and all the things they did it this is this is what they have to show for it and that's pretty and i guess that's what people are talking about when they're saying like you know here is Martin Scorsese kind of showing these guys at like their lowest in a way he doesn't even show when, you know, they go to prison in Goodfellas or something like that. Like a Goodfellas, like prison actually looks kind of fun. Like they're making like really good looking Italian food in prison. And, uh, and, and, and that's just how it, it is. They it, it talk, they say at least once in a bit more and it's on a lot of the promotional material. They, the quote is, it is what it is mm-hmm. that you know, when it comes to what happens to people aging, dying, it, it is what it is. Like, they, they're very matter-of-fact about this life. And you get different sort of people. You have Frank, who's the, the good soldier and, and observational and kind of just goes with what needs to be done. You have Russell, who's, for one, played by uh, Joe Pesci, and two, a mob boss is, by and large, the kindest person in the movie. Mm-hmm. He doesn't raise his voice. He doesn't curse. He's not particularly cruel. You know, he really only... Is in, is directly involved in one person dying, one or two. Others. There's there's a few others. There's like, a, I want my money. Yeah, yeah. I want I want the world to work the way I want. You know. So he's he's very matter of fact. You know, they're not dynamic characters. Jimmy Hoffa is a dynamic character, and you see what happens because his worldview doesn't line up. Yeah, you know, one of the other things I wanted to ask you about, and I mean, we can back up and talk about the first half of this movie some, but I we're, we're already here, so I want to ask you. I mean, there's been there's been a lot of discussion about you know, uh, just whether or not this movie, uh, you know, uh, takes too many liberties with what actually happened. Which I mean, first of all, we don't really ever, no one really is ever going to know what exactly happened uh, with Jimmy Hoffa, but just other things throughout this movie where you know, whether it be the the, the mob being the ones to to arm to supply arms for the Bay of Pigs or, uh, you know, 
getting JFK elected or stuff like that. They throw a lot of stuff like that in there. And uh, I guess who knows exactly what kind of tales uh, Frank Sheeran was spinning for Charles Branton, how much of it actually was true. But I mean, is that something you even like give any consideration to or does it really not matter to you as long as they're like telling a compelling story? Oh, yeah, no, I, I, I thought it was great, like additions to the movie in the same way that you can't look at the aviator as a history lesson. Hmm. Like it's a hmm. historical drama, but you're not using a particularly reliable narrator or subject. I thought that's what this movie really does a good job of it. It threads the Martin Scorsese history lessons, which are never particularly factually accurate. Gangs of New York, the aviator, the Hugo, these are, these are largely fictional stories centered on a time and a place where you can do the research to make the details right. And it's mixed with the genre he plays in most of all, which is the crime drama as a genre. So it's it's the coming together of two things that he's never really done before, which is why I think it it very much is sort of a, a thesis on his part. Like this is the way that I frame my I guess my three interests Hist- history, like especially American history. Right. Uh, right. Crime, my criminals, the life of, of people who work outside the law and what happens when you're forsaken by your creator. You know, he's very he's very interested in religious people who don't have a clean relationship with religion. You know, none of his none of his films are about the easiness of faith. I mean, Silence, especially for all my problems with it, presents a fairly compelling portrait of like how hard it must be to be oppressed. I, I agree. I, th- I thought he I, I thought he brought in all of the information, whether it be uh, liberties or actual act information, uh, really effectively. And I, I, I think it's cool that he because, uh, you know, you see you see part of this story almost like uh, it's very tangential to Casino. But it, I mean, you, you that was the first time I'd ever even really it was a history lesson for me. And I was like, oh. So the mob had a part in like building Las Vegas. Like I didn't even know that at the time until I saw a Casino. It was just something that I mean, I'm not totally unfamiliar with Vegas. I've seen a lot of movies about Vegas, and I've gone there a couple times myself. But I just I didn't really know that side of the story. And here it's like, oh, we're gonna build on it by showing you that like they were that money wasn't all coming from the mob. And I was like, oh, that's really interesting. I, I would, yeah, no, I think all the specific specificities of it. You can't read too much into like I'm, you know, gun to my head. I will say that Frank Sheeran probably did not kill Jimmy Hoffa. Right. But this is a compelling enough version of what ha- what may have happened. Um, I, I think when it comes to like the mob involvement in the Bay of Pigs, I think that's firmer ground. There's stuff that, that was in the book that they didn't get into, like um, whether they how, how detailed they were involved in the Kennedy assassination, things like that. They they mostly stay out of it and they just focus on. Know, Hoffa's reaction to Kennedy being out of the way, whereas, you know, there's there's a whole other story to tell there. But I, I I don't think it I don't think anyone looking for a history lesson or like a historical drama is in the right place. But at the same time, the 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 details help to to give you the sense of time because you need to have the sense. Yeah, even if uh, even if Frank spent a lot of time, everything happens deliberately. Yeah, even if Frank spent a lot of time around Jimmy Hoffa, yeah. like you can't know every single thing that happened with and every single um, decision that he made and what was said in every single room that Jimmy Hoffa was in. But nonetheless, I think uh, it, it seems true enough, and they do a good job of having it tie into like a lot of the themes that are pretty present in Martin Scorsese movies in a in just a story that he hadn't told before. Where it's like a lot of his movies are about guys who like just can't let their pride or ego they let their pride or ego get the better of them. When if they could just like you know set it aside to a certain extent, they'd be fine. 
Uh, you know, there's yep. like they're whole, they're trying to pull a massive heist in Goodfellas, but even in you know uh, something like Casino, where it's like at any point, you know, uh, Robert De Niro's character could just he could he could get out and he could probably be okay. And uh, same for a lot of those guys there, where it's like you already have so much money and you just want to kind of be on top. And it's the same here with you know with uh, with the Pacino character, where or with Hoffa, where it's like he probably would have been fine and lived a very comfortable life, but you know, he likes the power. He likes the status. He likes the ego and uh, he has his ego and he, he yeah. and just, he, he can't, he can't just let go of his union. And you hear that term like so many times throughout the movie. And it, I don't know, it just, it just, it, it felt very fitting for this to be uh, a story for Scorsese to tell on this scale, which he, who knows if we'll ever do that again with, with, especially with this cast of characters. Yeah, no, it was definitely a once in a lifetime opportunity for him to, more or less, with unlimited resources, the grandest portrait story he's ever attempted within this genre. That that was, yeah. <clears throat> you know, that's one of the reasons why anyone who complains about this being a Netflix movie needs to somewhat get with the program. Like, there are less and less opportunities for any filmmaker to tell the stories they want. You look at the names out and about who you would uh, assume could do anything. And they're they're finding less opportunities. I mean, you look at Guillermo del Toro, Scorsese, um, with the mild exception of Quentin Tarantino. There's there's limits on what anyone can make. I mean, so you yeah, see them going in different even, directions. I mean, even if you look at like a Jason Reitman, who hasn't had a whole bunch of hits recently, you can say that. But like, isn't is a you know a writer director like a filmmaker like a, a talent you would normally recruit to tell the story he has in mind and, and his next movie is Ghostbusters. Like that's just sort of the direction we're moving to Ryan Coogler. Like it was black Panther that got him that, you know, even to a higher level, like that's just sort of the way film is going. Now this, this was never a mid-level movie, but it has the, the bones of one, you know, what used to be the mid-level adult movie. So now that that's a Netflix movie. Yeah. I, I mean, this movie cost close to a hundred million dollars more than I mean, once it upon a time in Hollywood. Yeah, I was about to say it cost a couple of hundred millions of dollars. Um, we'll never know for sure. Yeah, and, and it's probably it's probably less than whatever I'm reading on. It's probably more than whatever I'm reading on Wikipedia right <clears> now. <throat> but you know, you mentioned all those other filmmakers, and I, I, I mean, that's where you got to give Netflix some credit because you can't. How many? I mean, maybe someone would have helped Mar- Martin Scorsese make this movie uh, and have it had it turn out about the same. But other, I mean, like you said, there's not really. Other, I, mean, I don't know how much what the budget's going to be on Christopher Nolan's next movie, but there really aren't any other like non Christopher Nolan, Martin Scorsese, Quentin Tarantino filmmakers that like get this kind of money to make movies. And those other two guys, prob- they might not have another studio willing to give them as much money as uh, Netflix gave Scorsese. So I mean, yeah. I, I get why people might be a, a little put off by Netflix having like kind of just dominating the box office, not box office. That's, 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 there could not be a less apt term to put there. Uh, just uh, kind of yeah. dom, dom, dominating the, the big releases this, this fall, especially at, with the award season coming up. But it's like, if someone's going to give them the money to do it, I'm happy for them to do it. But yeah, I mean, I feel like there's like, I, 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 want, I want to back up for a minute, uh, Joey, and just talk about some of the other, uh, some of the other stuff in this movie. Cause we've hardly, we actually have hardly really talked about just the, uh, the the gist of just, as far as just getting into this movie uh and we we can talk about the de-aging technology along with this if you want but i mean what what was your just take on the the because the, we t- already talked so much about the back half of this movie but what was your take on just the first half of this movie and uh seeing these guys age down and watching uh robert de niro's uh frank sheeran uh kind of get in with the get in with the philadelphia mob yeah never the tech never bothered me awful seeing uh, the, the clip that I saw really helped because they showed us one 
from the front half and one from the back half. She knew what to expect when we when we saw it. Yeah, so they showed us the scene where he's um, the guys, like when he goes to the the restaurant and sees uh, Russell for the second time, and he put together, oh, and now I know who he is, and you see Angela Bruno and all these people. So that was sort of the the, the first scene to get an idea of like what they look like young, and then they show us a clip with um, when Pacino meets with um, the the other mo- the other uh, teamster guy in Florida and has the argument about. Being being late. Uh, Tony Pro. So yes. yeah, yeah, St- Stephen Graham is great um, in this movie, by the way. Yes, as just the like epitome of an asshole. Mm-hmm. So it never bothered me. Every once in a while, you can see like an imperfection, but it's it's not a problem to me. Um, <clears throat> the first, you know, forty five minutes are the closest thing to fun. It's not fun in that sense, but it's it's the greatest hits. So of Scorsese doing his greatest hits and. You know, about 45 minutes in when Pacino shows up, you kind of get into the story proper. But I was I was all about it. It was interesting to watch it, having the information I had from from speaking to some of these people. Like I spoke to the cinematographer before seeing the movie and things like that. That's how I before we knew how long the movie was. I had an idea it was going to be long. Yeah, because I had asked him just like, hey, um, Rodrigo, do you know how long the movie is? And he said, "Um, long. I don't think I can say the exact amount. And I was like, oh. So long, long. He's like, yeah, I don't want to get in trouble. But yeah, so that was. He probably knew that they, probably, they could they could have easily shot like five hours of footage too. So he he might have not, yeah. he might have been. Well, like, I mean, I they, 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 oh yeah, they definitely shot more than they put in because they also um, they they the way that they shot this movie he was explaining was was this camera setup they had they had basically invented a new way to shoot a, a movie because they needed a series of cameras to be able to capture the the de-aging process without putting the, you know, the ping pong balls on them like they would do in, in oh, a Marvel movie. Gotcha. Well, for, you know, an 80 year old man, he might, Pesci might go, I'm going home. Never mind. So with these little pins they put on, <laughs> so they weren't intrusive. So all that stuff, like at the beginning, you're watching for, you know, in the first couple of minutes, just cause you want to see if you can figure out how the sausage is made. But once it, you know, five or ten minutes in, you you just accept that like this is what I'm watching, and you get into the story. Yeah, the de aging stuff really didn't bother me a ton either because I, I I I can't disagree with anyone that was like it's a little weird trying to figure out how old these guys are supposed to be because I mean De Niro doesn't look that young. I think they convincingly made him look like a guy that could maybe be like in his late thirties or forties or I whatever. Think I think he's about thirty or forty, depending on you know well, think, when they're showing. I think it starts like in the early fifties though, and he had just been in the war, so I I feel like he's probably supposed to be younger than forty. Might but... be. I mean. It's definitely the fifties, but I think it might be closer to the late fifties because oh, okay. I don't think he was doing it for too long when Kennedy when the Kennedy situation came up. Okay, that makes sense. And but either way, it didn't bother me a ton. Like uh, there were like there were a few times where Russell calls uh, Frank, uh, "Hey kid," and I'm like, "But is he supposed yeah, to but be I mean, a kid? Or is he just the way the guy talks? Because he's an old, older, yeah, yeah. He's supposed to be." you know, five or 10 years older than him, no matter what. So, so even if like that stuff, like maybe like made me think for a second at the same time, I, I still really enjoyed that section of the movie. Cause yeah. I just enjoyed that, that. At that point, that was when I was just like already totally in on what Joe Pesci was doing. And it was like really fun to watch, to be, come to the realization that like I'm getting a different Pesci here and I'm really enjoying it. And sure. I'm enjoying seeing Robert De Niro uh, ingratiate himself to this guy and uh, how you can just tell that, uh, Russell is taking a liking to him without like showing anywhere near the amount of theatrics that a Joe Pesci performance uh, normally would give you. And I th- thought that was just like really cool. And I was, and I was just enjoying seeing that. And, and yeah, like you said, the, 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 the proper plot of the movie, it, it might not be there at that point, but I'm, I'm enjoying just like watching Robert De Niro do a straight man thing that we've seen him do in some of these movies before. And just, uh, 
work his way up in a in an organization in a compelling way. I, I enjoyed that. Yeah. No, there's there's definitely sections you could split the movie up into if you wanted to. Mm-hmm. But the the intended way to watch it in one sitting gives you the sense of time that you need the forty five minutes or so of him becoming a part of the mob. Like instead of just being sort of a a low level guy who, you know, sells off the meat he's driving around and that's just the way he made a buck to oh, I can be bigger in the union and I can start to do this job on the side. That's step one. Okay, now I, I, I have a friend here who's going to help me. That's step two. Oh, they introduced me to someone else and now I'm on the way up. Like you need to experience the passage of time to realize he's put all this time in. This is, this is his life more so than even his family so that when he starts to grow closer to Hoffa in the second act – or I guess the second section. Yeah. You experience the time already. So when he has that hour and change of building up there, realize that like, oh, all that's been before that combines with this. Yeah, and it's also to just, form something bigger. Yeah, and it's also just important. Starts. I also think it's just important because, you know, you you want to see him talk himself into like each step of the way of like how deep in he is getting. You know, if he was just uh if he started committing murders in the first like 30 minutes it, it might just feel like all right well this guy just kind of went nutso but you know he the way his uh jobs for lack of a better term slowly escalate you can kind of see how he talked himself into getting to that point and r- rationalized it along the way to provide for his family and all that and i, I don't know i think the, i think the, again i think that does uh if the movie needs to be that long to accomplish that then so be it I, I, I agree with you there. Uh, I guess I'll just ask you then, though, because you're talking about how a, a, that that is like the that section in the movie is where you are mostly seeing him. I don't want to say interact with his family because I think that's largely by design. You don't see a lot of that, like you already said. Uh, mm-hmm. But uh, and, and again, I, 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 we didn't, I didn't follow up too much on it when you mentioned it earlier. I kind of like that take on it that he doesn't remember a conversation uh, with his with his with Peggy, and that's why they don't show one. And I, cause that was like my one big criticism after I saw it for the first time was like, I don't have a problem with the movie being this long, but I feel like if it is this long, like maybe I should have seen at least a couple conversations with her. That's all I wanted. I just a couple conversations with her to then, uh, make it make a little more sense at the end. Like why she is so convinced that he, he had something to do with Hoffa's murder, why she's cutting him off, like have a little more context for the relationship and how the family felt about him. If you have three and a half hours, cause there are a few things in this movie I think you could easily cut. I, I like I don't, but like at the same time, I, I'm not like saying any of it was bad. I'm just saying you could have had some more conversations with the family in lieu of that. But I, I guess, I, I guess your take on the family then is just simply that like he was just absent and it becomes more evident what the effect that had was. And therefore you don't really need to see a conversation and maybe they could have avoided a lot of this if they just hadn't cast such a recognizable actress. Is that something, is that a fair statement or do you think, Anna Paquin was important I mean, in what she brought to the table. No, I think I think she's very important because she's essentially acting with her eyes. Like she's true, the sort of moral arbiter of the movie. If you look, there's a lot of scenes of Peggy looking silently at him at the dinner table. True, uh, looking off at him when he's leaving. When he goes and packs the guns to go off on one of the jobs, she's the one who sees him. She watches him leave. Um, it's also one of the reasons why she grows so close to to Hoffa. Like. He does, in her mind, a legitimate job. Right. Her father does. Her father breaks the law for a living. Jimmy Hoffa is an advocate. To her, he's a good guy. That's one of the why they're so close. That's why she won't get close to her father. That's why or Russell. When Russell um, is is very nice to her, she's you know 
as cold as she can be without being rude because she suspects as well like they're in it together so he gets her nice presents he like, asks her if she needs anything and she always says no she doesn't want anything from him in the like gentlest way she can do but you know she the presence she has as she watches him get deeper and deeper into the mob the they keep going back to her point of view which is very indicative of the the judgment being placed on frank like frank doesn't think he's doing anything necessarily wrong doesn't think he's doing anything right necessarily. it's just the job it is what it is what it comes back to but she's very much someone who's passing judgment on him, really the only person who is. So when it gets older, you know, there's been 30-some-odd years of that. Mm-hmm. So you, you really don't have a chance. Like there's um, – I think Matt Singer wrote a really good article for Screen Crush where he details, you know, all of the instances where she's, you know, looking at him, she's judging him, um, where they try to bring the idea that that she's – an essential part of the film. And I, I think she's she's very important to the film. I understand why in first glance she wouldn't seem that way. But she's she's the only one who calls him out on being a murderer, on being a bad guy. Everyone else just sort of goes, oh, he must be doing whatever he's doing. So it's, you know, it's very, I think it's, it's just essential. I think, I think he, I, if you, I think there's a misreading of the film if you don't think, that if you think she's wasted or like there was some sort of like anti-female bias, like there's, it's very essential to the film that she be the way she is in the movie. You could have her talking, but the, the story Scorsese wanted to tell and the regret he sees at the end, you need her to be completely rejecting of him. I think people just are used to the speech, like that one, like, here's why I'm not talking to you anymore or the, or the reconciliation. And he doesn't, no, yeah, I, I like that point. Like, if there had been one speech where she told him off, that probably rings false. I, I agree there. Well, you could have done that, and that's a very traditional way to do it. And I imagine um, – I, I don't remember the exact things that uh, Matt's article gets into, but I, I think I remember somewhere there was a difference in the script at one point with possibly more dialogue. Not much, but I think there was a different line reading here and there. So there – there was a choice made specifically to make this as sparse as possible when it comes to their conversation. One, because they have absolutely nothing to talk about. Two, because it's, like I said, Frank narrating the story, so he can't remember the conversations because what he remembers is where he was. He was at work. Um, he remembers his conversations with Jimmy with Jimmy and Russell. No, that's, um, that's a really good point. Like, yeah. th- th- This whole thing is framed through the device of him uh, being on the uh, interviewee end of an interview. So it's yeah. every every scene we see is him specifically remembering something. So he literally specifically remembers in great detail just about conversations he had with every single other person in his life. So I think yeah. when you think about it that way, it's like, huh? Yeah, maybe he just literally was that bad of a dad, and that yeah. that that He's, that can kind of explain it. Yeah, his life is defined by three relationships: his relationship with Russell Buffalino and the Philadelphia mob, mm-hmm. which. Made him a lot of money. Made him an important person. He ended up watching his friend die in prison. He's going to die in a, in a nursing home. Second relationship is a relationship with Jimmy Hoffa. Became his, you know, his other closest friend. And because of his dedication to the mob with Hoffa, he puts a bullet in his brain at the end of the day. And then the third relationship is with his daughter, where he can't remember a conversation with her. She doesn't want anything to do with him because he chose them over her. And it's only when there's only her left that he really makes an effort. He never made an effort at the other times. He thought he was doing right in his mind, but that was just never the case. 
I also think it's kind of telling he, 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 I mean, obviously like you, if you're trying to remember someone or think about them and you can't be in personal contact with them, you, you look at pictures of them. Uh, but mm-hmm. like, I think it's, is telling that like he, he, he does spend so much time looking at the pictures yet. He does, that doesn't conjure up any actual detailed memory at all either. Uh, you, like you easily think it in some ways maybe could, and it still doesn't, you still, you still don't end up seeing a conversation with him. So I don't know. I appreciate the way I appreciate you going so deep on explaining that. Cause that was probably the one part of the movie I struggled with the most as to whether or not that really was something that was all that bothersome to me or not. Uh, you already talked yeah. a lot about Hoffa in the context of the way Peggy sees him as a legitimate businessman. Uh, what was your, just, uh, how, what did you think about how the movie kind of, uh, just dove into the mechanics of how he operated the teamsters? And cause I, it was something that I was honestly a bit ignorant about. I mean, I, I knew who Jimmy Hoffa was. I knew that he ran the Teamsters. I knew that he had, uh, I knew he was a very big deal because, I mean, because the Teamsters were just hugely influential at that time and that he had a suspicious death. But I, I don't think I fully understood exactly, you know, uh, what he got himself into that uh, made him such a, a controversial figure, such a wanted, a big target for RFK and just what, what his mob ties actually were other than people just talking about did the mob kill Hoffa. Uh, yeah. what, yeah. how, how did you think the movie kind of, uh, integrated that whole entire, that, just that storyline with all of the, uh, mob stuff? I think it did a pretty good job. I, I was fascinated by it just cause I, I like political history. So things like that are interesting with, to me to begin with. And also just, it, it became an interesting avenue to get a larger than life figure into the movie. You know, everyone else is very grounded, very matter and you need a you need a bragger because he's the guy who upsets the apple cart. He's he's the he won't let well enough alone, and that's you know a really great vehicle for an Al Pacino, and interestingly enough, someone who you know in an, in another hand this role could be you know the worst instincts of Pacino, and it could be loud and brash and chewing the scenery and probably still a lot of fun, but closer to scent of a woman. And I and I don't mind scent of a woman, but I understand why people hate that performance. Mm-hmm. And it could could have been closer mm-hmm. to that. This is very reined in for him. He's. It's he's still going to eleven, but it's then being remixed by Scorsese in a way where you're like, oh no, this is what you can do when you yell and scream and do your Pacino thing, but in service of a character, as opposed to the character being in service of Al Pacino. Yeah, because you know, I, I, well, part of what I like so much about it is that it's it's not Pacino in the ways that people might be afraid. It might be Pacino because there are so many quiet moments where he has a genuine relationship with Frank, and I enjoyed just like I enjoyed seeing Frank and Russell Bond. I enjoyed seeing uh, Frank and Jimmy Bond, and some of the moments where it could be like, "Oh, is this bordering on Al Pacino going over the top?" Uh, I, I end up turning into something else, and I'm thinking specifically of the "Oh, it didn't apply to you" scene, which might be the hardest I've laughed in a movie in quite some time this year. Uh, where he, he's just chewing out all of his lieutenants because they haven't done their job correctly and it's put him in precarious legal trouble. And uh, Frank thinks he's referring to him and Frank walks out of the room and he's very upset and he has to go calm him down. I'm like, okay, this is kind of like a funny way to uh, to subvert what your expectations are going to be when you see uh, Al Pacino as Jimmy Hoffa g- go off on one. Oh, yeah. No, that's that's a great scene. Yeah, no, I, I enjoyed it too, and I again, I think he, I don't know, it, it was it was very well modulated. I see what you're saying, and there there are certain ways it could have gone over the top. Uh, we should also you briefly uh, referred to the scene earlier uh, with Stephen Graham uh, with Tony Provenzano down in Florida. Uh, that might be like the best scene in the movie uh, when he when he has to 
go seek Tony Provenzano's endorsement to get back in the Teamsters, and uh, that allows him to do everything in one scene. You know, he has to he has to try and contain himself because he obviously wants something from the guy, but he can't control himself, and it allows Al Pacino to do all of the things in one in one six minute sequence or whatever it is. And, uh, man, he, he's really great. Yeah. He's great. in that scene. Agreed. Uh, I, 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 I don't, I don't need to rehash every single point in this movie. Cause the fact is people, everyone else saw it, but I guess, uh, Joey, I, I've had, I've, this is like the third time we've done one of these podcasts, but, uh, you're by, by, by trade, I think your bread and butter are, is talking about award season and stuff like that. So this is pretty apt because we're recording this on the night of when the Golden Globes nominations were announced and the Irishman yep. got, uh, five nominations. The, the notable snub was, uh, was Robert De Niro, you know, it got a, it got best picture in a drama, uh, writing, directing, uh, Al Pacino and Joe Pesci in supporting, but no Robert De Niro. Uh, wh- wh- where are you at as far as where you think this movie is going to be as an awards player? Do you, are, do you consider it your favorite for best picture at this point or have you you uh, not made any predictions anytime recently or redone yours? Uh, how are you feeling about the Irishman's award chances compared to some of the other heavy hitters as we kind of go down in award season? Um, I, uh, I had updated on Friday, I believe. So it's my uh, number two in picture and director. Um, I have De Niro just missing actor. I have Pesci number two in supporting actor. I think I have Pacino at three. I have a winning adapted screenplay and I have it nominated in a whole bunch of the um tech categories i think i maybe only have it winning editing right now but it's uh it's yeah it's one or two in a lot of spots uh, a lot will depend on what happens with guilds we're gonna see sag um depending on when people hear this today's monday it's happening on wednesday hmm. so presumably it'll get an ensemble nomination um pesci and pacino probably get in where what happens with the nero will be interesting there I didn't realize yeah. that because I, 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 I guess it, this, this morning wasn't as surprising to you then. Maybe I just hadn't looked at a lot of predictions in a while or whatever. Yeah, but actor, I, actor, actor stacked. stacked. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and then the – yeah, um, for, for Golden Globe drama actor, it seemed pretty clear you were going to get Driver, Phoenix, and uh, Antonio Banderas because Antonio Banderas appears to the Hollywood Foreign Press especially. Um, so those last two spots were going to be Price – Christian Bale, who two made it in, but then you had De Niro right there. You had um, Sandler, who was moved to drama at the last minute. So, arguably, he went from being nominated in comedy to just missing in drama. So that wasn't a huge, huge surprise. It'll be interesting if it misses anywhere going forward. It hasn't missed anywhere yet. It led the Critics' Choice Awards, where I voted. It's my first year voting there. Um, it's hit everywhere, got into the art director's guild. Like so far it hasn't missed the thing yet. So I would say it's a threat for picture and director, uh, right there once upon a time in Hollywood. And that could just go until the end. And then you're going to look at supporting actors, a possible win and adapted screenplay as a possible win. And the tech categories sort of depend on what's happening with it above the line. Yeah, I guess my only other question really then is now that I got your full kind of lowdown on where the Irishman stands is, you know, I would you say that just because you know Netflix is so omnipresent with all their movies this year, whether it be in award season w- between this and Marriage Story and Two Popes, and I feel like I'm forgetting one of the oh I guess I mean Dolomite is my name is right there with Eddie Murphy, uh, and I think I might even be forgetting another one. But I mean, should we just uh, assume that like a Netflix bias won't be as any as big of a factor with whatever role that might have played in Roma not winning Best Picture last year? Is is that almost like an afterthought at this point where it's like they're so clearly in the game now with all these movies? 
Uh, it's close to that. There's definitely mm-hmm. people who still consider a bias, but I think they're getting fewer and fewer. Um, you talk to Oscar voters, and a lot of them do think that the Netflix bias is why Roma lost, that enough people weren't ready. So I think if if those people were holdouts, they're either always going to be holdouts, and you just have to factor that in as the you know strength of schedule gets a little bit harder for the Netflix films, or it takes a certain film to get them over the hump. The Irishman definitely could be that. It's hard to imagine a cinema purist, you know, who would hold a grudge against Netflix, not also going, well, Martin Scorsese's like magnum opus gangster movie is not cinema. Like that's not going to apply. Just like marriage story is a very traditional, um, Oscar centric drama. Um, two popes is a, you know, very also Beatty character piece. Like these are, these are things that are way easier sells. Roma. I could even make the case overperformed that it, it, you know, in another world is a, you know, foreign film winner nominated for cinematography, maybe gets into director. It, it, there's another world where it does the Cold War three, as opposed to what it did. So, you know, Irishman, I don't think is going to have that problem. It may not win just because you have another very actor and Hollywood centric epic in Tarantino's movie, hmm. really, really pitching itself to the same, you know, old Hollywood audience. So I don't know the bias is there anymore that's going to keep it from winning, but it's still there to some degree. You know, Marriage Story is going to have the same issue, but I think it'll get in just fine. The Two Popes would be the interesting one to look at. Like, if they're really over Netflix as being uh, a threat, they won't have a huge problem getting a third film in, which is almost unheard of. Whereas if there's enough people who don't want to go all in on Netflix, you may see that be an issue. It's not going to be an issue anywhere else because it doesn't matter. I think they got 61 nominations at the Critics' Choice Awards into between TV and film. Yeah, I don't want to put you two on the spot, but I mean, since they've uh, since the field expanded beyond five, I mean, it's obviously had different incarnations of how big the Best Picture field has been since then. But I mean, have we ever had one studio have three not Best Picture nominees in one uh, year? Not, not in I believe 50 or 60 years. Oh wow! Okay, so yeah, um, never, never happened in the kind of the, the no, expanded field it, era. It's, okay. it's very difficult because there's almost never three contenders from right. a studio, let alone. I mean. Arguably, Sony could do it also this year. They have Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, which is going to get in. They have Little Women, which may or may not get in. And they have A Beautiful Day in Neighborhood, which deserves to get in, but is likely to be snubbed unless there's a slight change in the you know gotcha. the way things are going. So they, they yeah. were up there. But yeah, you don't normally see three because it's also just such an expensive proposition to get three in. And especially if you have three, it's very hard to balance out your, your contenders. If you have three movies, you've got to balance out three actors in the same category potentially you know it's very very difficult to do that and if you look netflix is is primed to you know have half of the acting nominees in a, in, a, in one of the in one vision of how this works out so they're 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 targeting things very they're, you know they're to do it sports wise they're they're playing like the yankees they don't the budget doesn't matter they don't care if it's a you know like oh we have a, a three aces or yeah screw it just get another one in so they're they're going with the the high powered way to get in. They 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 took a small step over the last couple of years. Roma was a bigger step, but you know every they're they're breaking down all of the remaining barriers that they have. I mean, this was the first year where Golden Globes nominated a Netflix film and picture, and they got four in in total. So they're they're well on their way. Right, Roma couldn't be nominated because of their rule about the foreign films. Exactly, same same reason why Parasite wasn't up for it this this year. Yeah, 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 yeah. So I mean. 
Yeah, it's, it's it's interesting to just uh, you know hear you break it all down. Now I don't I, I don't know how big of a role it might have even played, but it did seem like they made a little more of an effort to get the Irishman into more theaters than even Roma was. Which yeah. I mean that might just have something to do with Martin Scorsese wanting that to be the case, but uh, that that can't hurt too. So yeah. as far as I think there was more there was also probably more demand from the theaters, even though they they have a sort of complex and very antagonistic you know. Jimmy Hoffa, Tony Pro relationship to the theaters and the. <laughs> oh, I mean, yeah, Regal, Regal and AMC still didn't show it. So, uh, yeah, I mean, um, it depends on where you are. I mean, in, in New York City, you know, the the a couple of the big theaters, um, you know, the big art houses had it, and uh, Netflix actually bought a theater for uh, Marriage Story, so they're they're slowly figuring out the game. I mean, they, it's not a concern. I think the the theater count is not a a big deal to them, at least just yet they're they're more concerned with how do we get this to be looked at just on the same level as everyone else because they have uh, the funds they're outspending everyone and they it's comes back down to like with why the irishman exists you know they didn't say no to the budget they didn't say no to the running time they didn't say no to the effects like everything there was okay well we'll do it i'm sure there were conversations and debates about exactly the number to spend but it was never it didn't seem like the answer was ever no. It was yes and, as opposed to yes if, hmm. which is a, which is a big deal. Like that's, if you look at the other films in contention, if you go down like my best picture predictions, the only other movie that really resembles that is Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, and that's because you still have Quentin Tarantino essentially working as someone who can dictate his own shots, and also it was the first time he wasn't working with the wine scenes. So hmm. Sony to make the deal, I'm sure had to commit to basically whatever you want because he could have chosen his you know his yeah, anyone would have yeah 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 so that's that's something to keep in mind you know you're looking at a, a changing landscape and when these giant films are either made as blockbusters that don't necessarily contend for awards or they tend to be smaller scale things that just contend for awards netflix is trying to have it all still make, yeah they're trying to still do the big movie that gets in like next year they're they're they you know they already have at least one big player and it's uh, a David Fincher movie. You know, oh that's, right, yeah. Which is a Frank Mankiewicz uh, story, which is going to be in black and white. It's going to be expensive, like everything about it. It was like written by Fincher's dad, right? Yeah, uh, David yeah. Fincher's father, Jack Fincher, wrote the screenplay years ago. Um, so he's going to produce it and shoot it, and it's going to be essentially a, a film buff movie about like the struggles of making Citizen Kane with Orson Welles. Like that's not a movie that would get greenlit. By a lot of places. Is that already in production? Um, I believe it is. I'm just kidding. I, I, wonder, who's, I wonder who's playing Orson Welles. Or, 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 um, yeah. Hang on. Give me one moment. Yeah. Um, I know Gary Oldman is playing Mank, and there's a number of other cast members that have been have joined, but I don't know that it's in production yet. Oh, it okay. is... Let's see. Uh, I don't know off the top of my head. Uh, yeah. Tom Burke oh, is playing Orson Welles. Oh, okay. Yeah, I don't, I, he, he's a British guy. I guess I probably might know him if I saw him, but there's a lot of white British guys out there that you know, uh, kind of You together. would know him most recently. He was in the Souvenir this year. Oh, he was that guy. Old, yeah, he was Billy. Oh, and yeah. Only God Forg- he was uh, Billy and Only God Forgives, the, the Ryan Gosling movie. Yeah, yeah. I, I've been a few years since I saw Only God Forgives, but I, I mean, I could actually see that. It, the guy in the suit, I, I saw the souvenir. I'm like, I could, if you put, the, put some weight on that guy, I could make a really good Orson Welles, actually. Uh, yeah, he's, uh, Anthony, he's Anthony in the souvenir. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, interesting. 
All right. Well, yeah. I, I mean, good for Netflix. I mean, I mean, I hope I hope other studios keep investing in projects, not necessarily on the scale of this. That'd be kind of crazy to expect. But you know, I mean, Netflix wants to keep doing this. Hopefully, some other people, you know, follow suit if they want to kind of yeah. try and be as uh, dominant as Netflix appears to be in the awards game this year. I was gonna say I, I don't know that we're gonna see that really. I mean, Amazon was you know the other one, but they have a different model. Yeah, uh, yeah. Apple, Apple, Apple is probably the other one that could do it. They have the money also, if they want it, yeah. Yeah. I mean, Amazon, Apple, and Netflix have all the money. Apple just is so new on the scene, and I don't think they know what they want to do yet. Um, they also picked a problematic first project. That's another story. Yeah. Um, Amazon just always went with a different model. That's why up until last year, they were the streaming you know, platform that seemed like the better bet because they were putting things out in the theaters. They were partnering with... I think it was roadside attractions. Yeah. And they were and they were going, we're going to not worry about anything right now. We're gonna put it out traditionally, hope for the awards, because we know that six months after it comes out, once it comes to Blu-ray, it's also coming to Prime and then it's ours. Uh, and it worked out for a while. You know, they won Oscars. They they got uh, Manchester by the sea, not too too far from a best picture win. But since then they also their money issues have been a little different. And they haven't been able to get anything as close. So in that time, Netflix figured out the plan. I mean, mainly what they did was they hired a really good PR team. Mm. Uh, basically, the team that ran the Oscar campaigns for La La Land and Moonlight that year uh. now are Netflix's in-house team. Instead of hiring them, <laughs> they bought them. Uh. They essentially, instead of going and saying, hey, can you run our campaign this year? They said, would you like to work for Netflix? And here's all the money. Yeah, so. They they figured out how to play the game the right way. Yeah, interesting. Um, one one last thing. I, I you've been really generous with your time, but I I, I do want to back up for one second because one thing I just looked at my notes from the Irishman, and mm. uh, one thing that I forgot to mention was I just wanted to give a shout out to Ray Romano. Uh, yeah, kudos to that guy for like has all the money in the world from everybody loves Raymond could easily just like do nothing for the rest of his life and uh, just do rich guy things and not work. And yeah. it's like, you know what? I'm going to like find interesting things to act in. And he's really, and even more so really doesn't, doesn't stand it. Doesn't like stick out. Like he's no, you he's mean, that, that's the one the worry movie. for someone like him. That's that famous and is known for like doing straight comedy. Yeah. I mean, he's a little, he's a lighter presence in the movie, Yeah, but you need it. You need him to be sort of one level more buffoonish than everyone else because he's the entry level. His job is essentially to scout you and like figure out, oh, are you worth bringing even even bringing over to my uh, my uncle? Yeah, or cousin. Right? Cousin, I'm sorry. But, but I mean, and there's also like a certain level of buffoonery that's going to be inherent when you're the guy that has to get up in front of the court and like defend a bunch of like people doing blatantly illegal stuff. Yeah. Uh, so uh, that's not even I wouldn't even say it's like totally on him at all. If if he does, uh, if it does seem like lighter, that's just by design. Uh, yeah, it just and, has the, he just has that funny line where he goes, yeah. you know, I don't care if you did it, but, <laughs> you know, yeah. you, you yeah. want to know if I did it, did you? Yeah, yeah, you know, <laughs> which is a really funny scene, but also is him basically asking, will you keep a mob secret? Yeah. So when he goes, yeah, I, I, I don't I don't I don't commit crimes. I, I do my job. That's him going. I can keep a secret. Yeah, that was him it's, answering it's, it's that question. the test, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. No, it's just really cool, though, to see him, like, convincingly disappear into roles like this. Like, he was, like, the one redeeming thing about Vinyl. I only watched a couple episodes. Some people stuck with yeah. it the whole year. A lot of the same team that was in that is obviously involved in this. And, uh, I mean, same with this. I mean, whether it be The Big Sick, he did this stint on Parenthood. And it's, like, I, I there, comedians, like, make that transition all the time. But, like, I mean, you know, like, and some guys, like, that get their start is, like, 
stand-ups don't necessarily then become like and then go into acting don't necessarily get super famous doing like a multi-cam sitcom and then go doing an uh, then get into movies like this it's like exactly uh, to, to like have someone be known for like multi-cam which i mean with all due respect to people that do that well i like some of those shows it's it doesn't seem like it takes like as like exp- as a uh, high degree of difficulty to like act in something like that maybe it could become like, a it could become a job in the same way you frank just looks at being a hitman as a job yeah, it just seems like impressive for someone to like up their game from like just doing something like that to doing something like this, and I that's sure. why I wanted to like make sure I gave him a little bit of recognition. Um, Joey, do you have any other final thoughts on this before we uh, let you go? Uh, I would just encourage people to at some point if they can watch it in one sitting, right? And to uh, pay attention to sort of as much as it is told from Frank's perspective. Look at how how Peggy sees him. I think that's a, a really interesting way to read the movie. Yeah, I'll, I'll reiterate that again. I, I think it's important to uh, pay. I, that was one thing I was going to say when you were talking about that stuff earlier was that it did stand out to me even more in the second viewing, just like uh, how many moments she really did observe him just doing yeah. going about his business where they might not even be talking. But I think that really helped me kind of get that part of the movie was seeing just how often she saw him because after my first viewing, I really only remembered it might have just been there was so much to take in. I couldn't remember it all at once. I only really remembered the one where she sees him dealing with the guns and then looks out the window and sees him in the car and then sees yeah. him drop the gun on the floor of the car and that was the only one i remembered there's like even before you get to the anna paquin part of the movie there's like a there, there's at least three other scenes where she's just watching him and on top of the, gro- the there's the, i mean there's the grocer thing too obviously but there's like a couple others on top of those two that's like okay this is like something that they're not like they're, they're not just uh this isn't coming out of nowhere at the end which might have been a little bit what i thought after my first viewing and not so much after my second viewing yeah but yeah uh joey before we sign off anything you want to plug where can people find you and find your stuff uh, well, obviously, social media. It's my name on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram and uh, Letterbox and all that stuff. You can see the obsessively large amount of movies I watch in a year. Uh, and, uh, yeah, at the award circuit, we've got the, the Blu-ray column every uh, Tuesday. Periodically some reviews there, but a lot of award season-centric stuff. You know, some some upcoming stuff are on uh, the on – the, uh, um, was it A Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood – that's one of the things I'm, I'm doing something on pretty soon. And then Hollywood News, where I have all my reviews and predictions and sort of analysis of it. So those are the two sites. And, yeah, that's that's pretty much where it goes. And then Star Wars next week. So if you're curious oh, about that, I'll be that – li- uh, That little movie. Yeah, I see that on Tuesday. Same day as Cats. Oh, wow. What a big day for you. <laughs> oh, yeah. What a, and what a back-to-back screenings. You can also uh, hear Joey on the Circuit Breaker podcast, correct? Indeed. You can yeah. – uh, every Sunday. We record every Sunday and then it goes up during the week. We're in a we're in a part of the year where I don't listen to you guys all that much because I'm trying to like not hear anything about any movie until yeah. I've seen all of them and then like I just have to binge all of them once it gets to January because I should have I, I should see everything by January. I'm really only missing like Uncut Gems, Little Woman, and like the Two Popes as far as anything that's like super yeah. awardsy. Well, Two Popes will be on Netflix pretty soon for you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I'm and then not, Uncut Gems is this Friday. Well, that's it's in limited, you know. So I, yeah. who knows when it'll get down to the plebeians like us? But I'll be in New York in a couple of weeks. So if it hasn't gotten to me, then I'll I'll be able to just uh, find it there pretty easily. There uh, so uh, as usual, I'm at Josh Turnovoy, J O S H J U R N O V O Y on both Twitter and Letterbox. The podcast Twitter is Rewind Movie Pod and uh, email Rewind Movie Pod at gmail if you want to give us any feedback. Uh, coming up next, we'll have a podcast either on. Uh, both Waves and Queen and Slim or on Marriage Story. So thanks again to Joey for joining us and stay tuned for those. We'll see you next time. Thank you.